Uh, Leanne, thank you so much for reading for us. Hello, everyone. It is good to be uh, with you again. Let me add my welcome uh, to Lachlan's, uh, to everyone, but especially also to Kelly. It's great to have you with us again uh, these two weeks. Let me take my mask off. I should remember that, shouldn't I? Uh, the eyes of the world this week have uh, all been on Glasgow, really, haven't they? Where um, you know more than 30,000 delegates and uh, leaders from across, uh, across the globe have gathered to discuss the world's future, and it's been billed as the best last chance we have uh, to avoid climate disaster. And uh, it, as we've heard about one leader after another getting up to address their peers, it, it is hard not to get a sense of how impressive it all looks. Um, if one of the keys to getting things done is getting the right people in the room together, I mean, surely this is it, isn't it? Uh, I guess only time will tell. Uh, but this term here at church, our eyes have been on another meeting that has taken place a long time ago. At first glance, we have to admit it's nowhere near as impressive. Uh, not even 1,000 people, let alone 30. And not a world leader anywhere in sight, at least not in a political sense. In fact, apart from the one who called them together, I reckon you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who would look at this group of people and think that the right ones were in the room. And yet history tells us that in direct consequence of this meeting and the things that were discussed at it, 11 of these men would very soon become the key leaders of a movement that has since spread the whole world over in time and place to people of every nation, tribe and tongue. And I've called it a meeting, but really it's more of a masterclass, a, a tutorial, if you like, between a rabbi and his students, a, a lord and his disciples. And the timing is important because this is his hour. Uh, the, the climax of his life's work is about to be revealed. And so this is him really preparing them for what will happen next after he leaves them. And our passage today is really just one part of that bigger piece, but it is an important part. And the wonderfully comforting truths that it teaches about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I think, uh, may well be ones that many of us hardly ever think about. And so this is really important for us. Uh, you can see some headings on the outline. I'll tell you now that uh, you're going to need to look at the third one on your own later on. I was overambitious on Thursday when I had to get this into the office. But first of all, the realities that flow for those who love Jesus. Uh, it's clear that this is the focus of the passage because uh, it's talked about in five different verses. Uh, verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24 and verse 28. Um, what does it even mean, though, to love Jesus? Uh, we often use the language of love in kind of a romantic sense. It can hardly be that with us and Jesus. But still, is it moving in that whole world of emotions and affections? Well, uh, I really don't ever want to advocate for affectionless discipleship. But when we look back in the Old Testament, we look at the way that the Old Testament law unpacked what it meant for the people of Israel to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength... We go into the Gospels and we see that elsewhere, Jesus sometimes unpacks discipleship in terms of loving him and not loving others more than we love him. I think we actually come to see that 
loving Jesus is not about our emotions as much as it is about our priorities. To love Jesus means that he is our very first commitment. We hold him as our highest allegiance and our greatest priority. Uh, To love Jesus means that our desires and concerns have given way now to his desires and concerns. That we are committed, if you like, to, to living in a way that constantly disadvantages ourselves for the sake of expressing his lordship over our lives. That's why throughout this passage, the consequence of loving Jesus is again and again keeping his commands. So verse 15 puts it very simply, if you love me, keep my commands. In verse 21, it's all reversed for us. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, I think we can find this talk of command keeping a little bit difficult in some ways. We find it difficult culturally because our society trains us to be self-determining, even self-defining. We find it difficult spiritually because ever since Genesis 3, we are by nature command breakers much more than we are command keepers. And we find it difficult theologically, I think, because... I mean, last Sunday, Reformation Sunday, we rightly treasure the Bible's teaching that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works. And speaking of command keeping kind of troubles us and we we worry about that. But you see, here's where the order of ideas in verse 15 is absolutely vital. Because did you see what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, if you keep my commands... I will love you, but rather, if you love me, keep my commands. In other words, Jesus is not speaking here about an obedience that leads to salvation. He's speaking about an obedience that flows from salvation. Our love for him is never the initiating love. It's always the responding love. His love for us is the initiating love. And so he speaks about an obedience, which is the very expression of our love for him, our Lord and master and teacher. If you love me, says Jesus, keep my commands. But which commands is he talking about? That's important to nail down, isn't it? Well, I don't think it can be uh, kind of limited to this. After all, the word is plural, commands. But kind of here in these chapters of John, at the very top of the list must surely be Jesus' command that... His disciples love one another as he has loved us, which is by self-crucifying service, constantly disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of one another's advantage. And yet the fact that in verse 23, Jesus also talks about keeping his teaching, kind of in the singular, means that I don't think we can boil it all down to just a set number of very specific commands. It's actually the whole revelation of God that Jesus has come and made known. That the whole way of life, of eternal life, that comes through trusting in him. Uh, two last comments before we move on. Uh, first of all, because of the connection that he's made in verse 15 and verse 21, I think we have to say that if we are followers of Jesus then our keeping of his commands is never really optional for us. 
Uh, Take, for example, that command to love one another just as he has loved us. The condition that Jesus has set has got nothing to do with how available we are or whether or not we're feeling it or whatever stage of life we might think we are in. According to Jesus, it is simply a matter of whether or not we love him. Now, if that condition holds true, if we love him, then so must the consequence hold true. We must keep his commands. Uh, Finally, if we're ever struggling with the idea of keeping commands and feeling perhaps that, you know, we deserve a pass for some reason, uh, we really only need to look at verse 31 and remind ourselves that Jesus himself was also a command keeper as an expression of his love for his own heavenly father. Remember that phrase that the book of Hebrews uses, uh, Jesus, the, the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Even in this, he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He doesn't call us to anything which he hasn't himself done before us. Jesus is also a command keeper. Uh, However, the condition of verse 15 doesn't just govern the rest of verse 15. It it actually kind of relates to the whole rest of the paragraph all the way down to verse 21. And so having explained the consequence of loving Jesus in terms of what his disciples will do, Jesus now goes on to talk about what he and his heavenly father will do for those who love Jesus. And he talks about three things. First of all, verse 16, if you love me, keep my commands. And then verse 16, and I will ask the father... And he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, this is the first of uh, five little passages throughout these chapters of John that talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, In chapter 16, the focus will very much be on the ministry that the Holy Spirit has towards the world, testifying about Jesus and convicting people with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. But here in chapter 14, the focus is much more on the Spirit's ministry to believers, to disciples. He is called an advocate, uh, which really means that he is sent to encourage and to exhort and to strengthen and to counsel disciples of Jesus. Uh, He will do this by bearing witness to gospel truth. That's why he's called the spirit of truth. And over in verse 26, his role will be to teach the disciples all things and to remind them of everything Jesus has said. The fact that he is called another advocate almost certainly implies that in his earthly ministry, this is also what Jesus himself has been for his disciples. But even though he is now about to leave them and he's going to return to his Father in heaven, they will not be left alone and without support and help. Another advocate will be given and will be with them forever. So that's the first thing that will happen for those who love Jesus as far as uh, God himself is concerned. The second thing Jesus will do for his disciples who love him, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now, we're going to get some stuff up on the screen for a bit here just to help us understand what's going on. Throughout these chapters of John, um, there's a couple of different ways that Jesus uses the language of him kind of going away and then coming back. And so on one hand, he's, he's going away in death on the cross and he's coming back in resurrection. 
That's one sense. On the other hand, there is his going away to his father in heaven and his coming back in glory at the end of the age. Now, I don't think at this point the disciples understood the distinction between all of these, but Jesus can use different ones at different times. If we were to try and you know, shrink all these down and plot them on a timeline, from the disciples' perspective, all four events are still somewhere up in the future. Uh, from our perspective, of course, three of the events are now in the past and just one of them is up in the future. Now, at the start of John 14, those very well-known verses where Jesus talks about his father's house, has many rooms, and, and he's going there to prepare a place. And if he does that, then he's going to come back and he'll take his disciples to go and be with him. And at that point, he was really talking about leaving this world to return to his father in heaven um, and then coming back in glory at the end of the age. That, that kind of second going away and coming back, that's what he was talking about. But that's not what he's talking about here in verses 18 to 21. Now here he is speaking about his first going away and coming back, his death and resurrection. Because yes, he is about to leave his disciples. In fact, within 24 hours of saying these words, his body will lay in a tomb. But he's not going to leave them forever. He's not going to leave them as an orphan. He will come back to them and they will see him. And on that day, verse 20, the day when they see that he is raised from the dead, then all of a sudden... All of his teaching will finally strike home in their hearts and they will begin to understand things in a way that they haven't yet understood things. And they will know the astonishing truth that he is in the Father and they are in him and he is in them. So there's the second thing that will happen for those who love Jesus. The third thing that will happen for those who love Jesus is they themselves, the disciples who love Jesus, will become objects of divine love. This is verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and I will show myself to them. Uh, if you've ever heard the, the, you know, the father or, or, or mother of a bride and groom, like the parents of a bride and groom at a wedding, give a speech. Some of you will have given this speech. Uh, but you'll probably get this point intuitively, won't you? Because just as a general rule, parents find it really easy to love those who love their children. Now, if that's true of us, how much more is it true of the perfect heavenly father who perfectly loves his perfect son and has done so from all eternity? And so if we love God's son, then of course the father will love us. And Jesus himself will love us. And so you see, what is being described here by Jesus is that to be his disciple, to be his follower, to be someone who trusts him for the gift of life, both in this age and in the age to come, that is to have been brought into the most personal, the most intimate, the most extraordinary kind of circular relationship of love with the eternal and everlasting triune God of the universe whereby we love Jesus and we keep his commands. And he asks the Father to give us the Holy Spirit who will be with us forever. And we know that he's appeared before eyewitnesses in resurrection and we become objects of both his and his Father's love. And friends, this is something 
infinitely more profound than simply being a regular attender of a church, isn't it? This is something drastically more significant than whether or not we or our children have been christened or baptised or whatever other word we want to use for it. This is something that is so much more compelling than having a preferred form of liturgy or whether we like singing hymns with an organ or songs with a band. It just, this is just the most profound kind of relationship experience that Jesus has unpacked for us. At the 8 o'clock service this morning uh, over the road, Foxy had this lovely reflection. You know, we've just come out of lockdown and, and for so long we, we've kind of been used to distance and, and we've had to distance and isolate. We're, even now we still have our chairs a little bit further apart from each other than we normally do and we're careful. We don't want a bottleneck, you know, as Locke said before. I mean, distance is now kind of our normal but what Jesus is describing, there's just no distance between God and those who love his son. It is as intimate as intimate can get. If we love Jesus, these are all the benefits that flow. And this is the grace in which we stand. Again then, it all comes back to the start of verse 15 and whether we have responded to Jesus by setting him apart in our hearts and minds as Lord. And whether we have entrusted ourselves to him for life both now and in the age to come. Whether we have made him our first priority and our greatest allegiance, if you are with us this morning, friends, and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, Jesus, who died and rose again, who has returned to his Father in heaven and who will come back, he's the one we long to speak with you about more than anything else. He is the one we would long to help you consider more closely. He is the one we long that you would come to regard as Lord and worthy of all your trust. But of course, if you're here this morning and you do already name yourself as a Christian, and I know that's many of us, well, the start of verse 15 must always be our anchor point as well for holding on to and experiencing all these realities by the grace of God. Jesus is always the way and the truth and the life. And so we never move on from him. We are always to remain in him. Uh, I do wonder, though, if um, you've noticed anything kind of troublesome in the words of Jesus that we've been looking at so far, anything that's a little unexpected to, to what you thought he would have said. I mean, did you notice, for example, that at every point as Jesus has been speaking, he seems to draw a clear distinction between his disciples and the world. So concerning the Holy Spirit, for example, verse 17, he says, The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So there's a distinction there. Uh, of his resurrection appearance, he says in verse 19, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Of his and his father's love for his disciples, he says in verse 21, the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will show myself to them, the unspoken implication being that he won't show himself to the world. 
Do you see the potential problem with these descriptions? Because one of the disciples certainly did. Judas, not Iscariot, the other one. He asks Jesus in verse 22, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to, the, to, to us and not to the world? Uh, back in chapter 7, uh, there was a moment where Jesus' brothers, who at that stage didn't yet believe in him, uh, they were trying to convince him to head up to Jerusalem for one of the big Jewish festivals. And their argument was this. Um, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these miracles, show yourself to the world. And I think it's the same kind of logic that runs in Judas's question, but even more so, because unlike Jesus's brothers, Judas does believe in Jesus. He's come to accept firmly that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But if that's the case, if Jesus has come in to bring in God's kingdom and to rule the world, wouldn't that be something that the whole world needs to know about? Wouldn't that be a reality that would be made clear to all people everywhere? So why then does Jesus keep saying that he will show himself to the disciples but not to the world? See, it's a very good question, isn't it? We can't say that about all of the contributions that the disciples make in these chapters, but, but Judas's question is a good question. He's got his thinking cap on and... And he's been listening really carefully. But I think that only makes Jesus' answer more perplexing for us. In fact, for me, I think this has been one of the biggest puzzles in this chapter this week. Because at least on the surface of things, it's as if Jesus just completely ignores the question. Doesn't even get into it. And, and he just seems to go back to what he said at the start of verse 15. So verse 23, he responds, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then verse 24 in the negative, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And what's going on? Why isn't Jesus answering this really important question from Judas? Well, I think he is answering it. Uh, but to understand how, I think we've got to come back to the timeline we looked at before and the two different senses in which Jesus goes away and comes back. See, in many ways, Judas is absolutely right. There, there will be a return of Jesus that, that brings in the kingdom of God with such an outstanding degree of glory that it will be seen not just by disciples but even by the world. It's just that the return Judas is thinking about is the one that happens at the end. And the situation Jesus is teaching about and for which he's trying to prepare his disciples is the time that comes before that. When he will have returned to them in resurrection but not yet in that final sense. And in between those two returns there will remain for the world a kind of unseen hiddenness to the truth about Jesus and to the glory of the kingdom of God. I mean, it won't be like that for Jesus' disciples. After all, they will have the help of the Holy Spirit reminding them and teaching them about everything Jesus has said, that they will have the evidence of his resurrection. They will be the objects of divine love. But for the world... No, there'll be a kind of hiddenness to all these realities. 
And so in between the two returns of Jesus, there will be exactly the two kinds of people that he speaks about in verses 23 to 24. Those who love him, who obey his commands. Those who don't love him, who don't obey his commands. And friends, is this not the way of things even today? As we go about our lives... We still see these two categories of people, don't we? In their response to Jesus. Those who love him, those who don't. Those who seek him, those who don't. Those who keep his commands, those who don't. Do you begin to see then just how important these chapters are as a training ground for us? Teaching us how to live as disciples of Jesus in this time before his final return, when he's no longer with us physically. It's not just that this is kind of a roadmap, the divine roadmap for the chronology of the universe. No, no. The the point of these chapters is to give us confidence that we can continue to live and continue to speak as disciples of Jesus in a world that is still set against him and that won't recognise him. That's the world the disciples were about to enter into. And it's the world that we still live in today. But these chapters are here that that we might have confidence to keep living and speaking as disciples of Jesus, knowing that we have not been left alone. We've not been left without help and resources. God himself is with us and dwells in us, not only by his Holy Spirit, but verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my Father will love them and we will come, Father and Son, we will come and make our home with them. I asked one of my Bible study groups the other day, you know, who of us really kind of carries this sense of self into the week? You know, that... that, If I've trusted in Jesus, I am someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and even the Father and Son have come to make a home. Almost all of us had to acknowledge, no, that's not the way I normally think. But friends, is is that not what Jesus has been teaching us? No distance. This is as intimate as intimate can get. Truly, Jesus' words are words of peace, and he does not give to his people as the world gives. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and for these really precious passages where he was teaching his disciples about life in this age. And thank you for the extraordinary assurances that he has asked you to give your spirit to his disciples who love him. And thank you that he has appeared in resurrection. And thank you that as we trust in Jesus, we are objects of your divine love. And you and your Father have come to make a home in us. And so do help us, Heavenly Father, to love the Lord Jesus and to keep his commands. Amen.